0: If you will, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 3. we turning to the Psalms this morning, which I just love, love, love. Uh, they're so very practical. Uh, in a very real sense, the Psalms are theology applied. Uh, the Psalms take, help us take what we know to be true or we think to be true in our minds. And when real life intersects with what we believe, we get the Psalms. And so we're taking a look at Psalm 3 this morning, and very often that process of when real life intersects with what we believe is is messy, Uh, and the Psalms respond to that very well in ways that are real and honest and sometimes uncomfortably raw and visceral and emotional, and that's why they're so helpful. Helpful. Before we dig in, I want to set the stage for you first. Um, many of you know this week, Pastor Sean and I had the privilege and uh, indeed the responsibility of attending the General Assembly. And so there was a lot that went on there. There were deliberations. There were decisions to be made. And it's uh, a somewhat messy process at times, but it's how our denomination runs. And it, and it runs pretty well that way. But along with all of the decision-making and meetings, there were some some opportunities to learn as well, uh, where you've got a whole bunch of elders and pastors together uh, learning. And a lot of these opportunities for learning were about trying to get the gospel, for lack of a better word, right. Um, uh, To try to rightly understand and therefore communicate to you um, God's grace as revealed in the gospel. uh, God's mercy as revealed in the gospel. um, Our responsibility in and our response to the gospel. Um, And it's so very important that we get this right. Because it's all we have. The gospel is all that we have. It's all that we have to offer a a lost and, and a hurting world. And it's all that we have for our own nourishment and sustenance. Um, The only thing that will keep us going. And as such, the gospel is the consistent theme of scripture. Page after page, chapter after chapter. Pastor Sean has recently been been unfolding the gospel to us from Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning, we're going to find the gospel in the Psalms. We get the gospel from Paul, we can just as easily get it from King David. And so what my big hope is this morning is that we will get uh, some gospel habits, is what I've titled this, some things that will be true of our lives, evidences seen in our lives over and over and over that bear witness to the gospel's impact in our lives, So let me read for you Psalm 3. This is the word of God. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you come now and would you help? Holy Spirit, would you cast your illumining light on this word that you inspired? That you caused King David to write down. Under your inspiration, would you now come and help us to understand it rightly? To see the gospel herein? To see how, as the Lord Jesus claimed on that road to Emmaus, that even this psalm is about Him? So help us to see how it is about you, Lord Jesus, and change us and transform it, transform us by it. We pray in your name and for your sake. Amen. So before we get into what I think these gospel habits are that are revealed in this psalm, uh, let's get a little context of what's happening here. What's going on? What caused David to write this thing? We've got a superscription here above the psalm that's helpful. It says, when he fled from Absalom, his son... This came out of a real situation in David's life. You can find the narrative account of this beginning in 2 Samuel 15. But as David is busy being king, his son Absalom steals the hearts of a large number of people. And he raised a rebellion, and it came suddenly, it came very unexpectedly. And so as soon as David learns about it, his only option is to flee, to run for his life, to leave Jerusalem with a handful of faithful supporters, and he heads out into the desert. And so this is what gives birth to the psalm. Uh, These are the emotions and the fears and the crying out of David. It's probably one of the top ten crises in David's life. And the psalm lays out everything for us to see. There is, there's personal grief here. I mean, this is his son who's betrayed him. There's this rising tide of disloyalty all around. There's this rumor that God has withdrawn his hand from him. And there's the very precarious state that this leaves God's people in. Now that the king has fled. And I think if we look carefully, we can see the gospel at work here, leaving its marks. We work our way through the psalm this morning. I want to call out what I've, I've called habits. I'm not going to call them steps. I'm not going to tell you this is a formula, but I think that these are our habits of the gospel. David's in one of the biggest struggles of his life. And we're going to see the gospel at work. Some of you are here this morning and you're in what you would classify as one of the top ten crisis moments in your life. You may have come in this morning thinking, I have no idea how I'm even going to get through this. I want you to see the gospel at work through one of David's biggest struggles of his life. But many of you are not in one of the top ten crisis moments of your life right now. For many of you, it's just the ordinary, everyday grind of life, and it's million little crises that come throughout the day. But either way, whether this is one of the big top ten for you or whether this is just the ordinary grind, I hope that you'll give attention to these habits because honestly, it's more in the ordinary everyday grind that these habits are going to be formed and forged so that when the big stuff happens, these will be there for you and they'll be able to bear the fruit of the gospel in your life. Uh, The first habit that I see here is honesty. Uh, Evidence of the gospel being at work in your life and in mine is an increasing level of honesty. And David's being honest here. Look at verses 1 and 2. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many, many, many. They're saying of my soul there's no salvation for him. David's being honest. He's saying, ACK. this is a mess. I'm in trouble. They're saying, there's no hope left for me. This event comes after David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And like any great leader with a moral failure, people talk, rumors spread quickly, perhaps adding fuel to the fire of Absalom's revolt. This guy's done. There's no way the Lord is going to be with him after his failure. But you see, we have to be honest about ourselves and we have to be honest about our situations. You're not going to find in the Psalms a lot of sugarcoating or a lot of blowing sunshine. And this is hard for some people, admittedly. Because for some people, you know, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Right? You know these people, right? But for those who have the courage to be honest, sometimes your son betrays you. For those who have the courage to be honest, sometimes your family comes apart at the seams. if you've got the courage to be honest, sometimes you blow it big time. Sometimes you make huge mistakes, but we have to be honest about ourselves and about our situations. This honesty is so foundational to the gospel. To be honest about ourselves, to be honest about our situations, is to admit that we've got a problem that's far too great for us to handle. We lack the resources. See, our number one problem, I don't care what your top ten problems are, our number one problem is that we stand guilty before a holy and a righteous God and and we can't undo it, we can't fix it, We can't work our way out of it. We have to be honest about ourselves and about our situations. And David's being honest here. He's got a big problem. But right after that honesty, we also see in David's life the second habit. He's remembering. He's being honest. He's being gut-level honest. No holds barred. But we're also not going to find him wallowing in what he's being honest about. We'll see that in verse 3. He's been honest. Here's the situation. It's terrible. It stinks. But, but you, O oh Lord. But you, O oh Lord. Now, this is an awfully quick 180, okay? And I'm kind of cynical. And suspicious of things. Is this just David trying to put on a happy face? But God is good all the time. Is, is Is this just the power of positive thinking? Why the sudden change? Well, David took his eyes off of his problems, right? This honest mess that he's in. He took his eyes off of that and turn them back to his God. Bear with me here just a second. Because this is what he's doing. He's taking his eyes off of his problems and putting them back on his God. But that can quickly become some cliched bumper sticker thing that we try to tell each other when the hard times come. but this is more than that there's depth here to what David's doing and you and I need to understand what he's doing so that we can copy him so that we can engage in this process ourselves he's remembering he's been honest but now he stops and he says but you O Lord and he's remembering who do I know God to be Who's he revealed himself to be in his word? And how have I experienced that in the course of life? And so this is a, a conscious decision on David's part. It's an exercise he's engaging in. This is a terrible situation, but I'm going to remember who my God is. I'm going to recount to myself. He's, he's preaching to himself. He's saying self this is what you know to be true. This is what you've got to hang on to in a situation like this. And what does he come up with in verse 3? But you, O Lord, you're a shield. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. David's remembering, he's thinking, all right, he's my shield. He's defended me. He's protected me time and time and time again. When I was a young lad and there was this big giant named Goliath, the Lord was with me. When I'd been anointed king and I was running for my life from Saul, the Lord was with me. He's always come through. I'm going to. look back to his past faithfulness and apply that to the present. He's my shield. He's the lifter of my head. If you look at that narrative account starting in in 2 Samuel 15, uh, as David and his folks fled, they were weeping, they were in despair, and their heads were covered. No, David says, you're the lifter of my head. You're lifting me out of shame and out of despair, out of mourning and out of grief. And You replace that despair with hope. Remembering. It's very perspective correcting. We take our eyes off of self and the situation, though we've already been honest about them. In the gospel, remembering who our God is and what he's done, how he's been faithful time and time again, it lifts our gaze off of the honest assessment of what's going on with us and our situation, and it lifts our gaze to his power and his greatness. You see, our honesty is vital, but we've got to be completely and thoroughly honest all the way through to the end. Because there are things to be honest about that extend past our problem and to our great provision that God has made for us in the gospel. Yes, things are really bad. We are in dire straits. The problem is too great for our own solving, but... God, but God. While we were still sinners, Christ died. At just the right time, while we were still weak and powerless, Christ died. And so we have to be honest, not just about the bad news, but also the great news of provision for us in the gospel. David's honest, but David also remembers. And after that, David cries out. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered. He's got this horrible situation. He stops himself. He says, remember. And now what does he do? He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He doesn't gather around him all of his advisors and hatch some plan or strategy. He turns to the Lord. Knowing that he's able. Knowing that he'll answer and that he will answer from where? From his holy hill where he rules and he reigns. David cries out. He knows his God is listening. He knows his God will answer. He knows his God has the power and the authority to do something about this. David cries out for help. You and I, be it a top ten crisis or the everyday ordinary grind, need to cry out for help. That's the fourth gospel or the third gospel habit. The fourth is surrendering. Admitting our inability and relying on His sustaining Ability. David gets honest. He stops and he remembers. He cries out. And then what? Verse 5? He goes to sleep. He goes to sleep. I lay down and slept. It's pretty impressive for being on the run like he was. Able to stop and rest and let your guard down and sleep. And David slept. And more importantly, he awoke, right? And he knows why. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Why was he able to sleep? Because he came to the place where he was not trusting in his own ability to fix the situation. He was remembering who God is, trusting in his protection. And when you get right down to it, anything else is just untenable. Right? David cannot go without sleep. For a time, perhaps, eventually, though, right? he cannot go without sleep But he also can't protect himself while he is asleep. Surrender. Give up. Let him do it. And it turned out okay. David lay down and slept and he awoke. His head still attached to his body. This is a good thing when you wake up. Some of you this morning facing crises. Some of you need to lay down and go to sleep. You need to rest. You need to surrender. Trusting that you'll be sustained. Probably the key here to this surrendering is realizing that it's not just in the crises that we are sustained, but it's all the time. All the time. During just the plain, ordinary grind of life, you're being sustained. You're being held up. Love, in Colossians 1, this beautiful picture that Paul paints for us of Christ's supremacy. Of how he not only created all things, but he holds all things together. We're sitting in this room, not disintegrating, because Christ is holding molecule to molecule, making up our very substance. We're whizzing around the sun right now in this perfect little orbit. Because the creator of the universe is sustaining the universe. And if we would but begin to wrap our minds around that in in some small way that our tiny little brains are capable of, we can lay down and sleep, we can surrender. And then we'll be able to engage in our fifth gospel habit. We'll be able to press on. Verse 6, David's pressing on. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. And see, here's where I think the gospel's really at work. These habits are taking hold. The gospel's bearing fruit in David's life. Because David's making this declaration as things are actually getting worse. Right? It'd be one thing to be able to say, well, I'm going to press on now that it looks like things are turning around. But the way the psalm is laid out, things are getting worse. In, in verses 1 and 2, they're just taunting and, and talking about him saying, oh, there's no hope for him. But now there are thousands of people who have set themselves against David. There's about to be battle. Friends, you and I need these gospel habits in our lives for when things get worse instead of better. For when you find out that she filed for divorce. For when those scans come back and the treatment's not working and the tumors have spread. For when you lose your job and then they foreclose on the house. for when Absalom betrays you and then the numbers of his supporters swell. Which is what happens for David but instead of freaking out there is this peaceful confidence somehow it's very counterintuitive. He says I will not Be afraid. His heart's been changed. There's been this movement from faithlessness and doubting to trust. Out of this mess, he somehow presses on. He puts one foot in front of the other. Folks, the gospel works. It really does. It's power for salvation and for transformation we'll get honest, if we'll remember, if we'll cry out, if we'll give up and surrender, we can press on. We really can. Part of David's pressing on in verse 7 is crying out again. Arise, O Lord, save me, Oh my God. And here's an important point. Here's part of why I call these habits. Right? Not steps, not, um, not things that you advance past, not things that you master and then move on. No, these are, these are habits. What do you do with a habit? You do it over and over and over and over again. We'll constantly be crying out. We'll constantly be needing to remember. We'll constantly be needing to deal honestly about ourselves and our situations. We'll constantly need to surrender. Over and over again, and so David's crying out again: "Arise, O Lord, rescue, save." So those are the habits, and I've got two last things, and both of which come out of seven and eight. What are we to make of of breaking teeth and striking cheeks? See, I this for the end in hopes that maybe Jesus would come back before the end of the sermon. And then I wouldn't have to explain breaking teeth and striking cheeks to you. Because it seems awfully harsh, no? Right? This seems awfully harsh for David to suggest that this might somehow be how God would treat his enemies. This picture of striking the cheek, that's a, that's a gross insult. And David's been insulted by what his enemies have been saying to him and about him. Uh, and This picture of breaking teeth. Um, I think it's likely rendering his enemies unable to, to make those accusations anymore to taunt and to mock like that. I mean, you can try it at home. I was going to do it for you, but it's too embarrassing. Try taunting someone with your lips covering your teeth, right? If you have no teeth, your taunts don't come out very taunting, right? So perhaps that's, perhaps that's the picture here. Now, there's a reason that this is not ultimately a problem. It would be wrong for us to go out and strike cheeks or or break teeth. That would be wrong, okay? Don't do it. But there's a reason that it's not a problem for the Lord God. Because, see, this is not a matter of personal revenge for David. Not solely that. I'm sure he's human. There's got to be some mixture of motives involved. But even from the way that he's explaining this, you can tell That the larger picture is at least in David's mind here. Because ultimately, this is about the glory of God and the people of God. And that's ultimately what the gospel has got to be about. And, And so, that's what I've called here at the end these two themes of the gospel. The gospel is for God's glory. Why do we exist? it's our chief end according to the catechism? What does Paul say that we're to do whether we eat or drink or whatever we do? It's all about God's glory. Everything that he does, everything we ought to do is for this end. See, this is not simply the vindication of David at work in these last two verses. It's the vindication of God's chosen servant of his anointed one the one that he established the kingship of it's his glory that's at stake it's his glory that's at stake in our lives when it comes to these gospel habits what could be more glorifying for the Lord, than our needing Him, than our falling on Him, than our casting ourselves on Him in desperation, saying, we've got nothing. You have it all. We need you. What could be more glorifying than turning to Him instead of turning to our own efforts to fix it? But coming in brokenness and weakness and turning desperately to His strength and His provision. See the gospel was designed to bring him glory, to exalt the Lord Jesus as our able and capable and sufficient savior. The gospel's for God's glory. The gospel is also for God's people. S- you see in verse eight, David's concerned about God's people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David's the king. He's been called to rule and defend a people. God's people. And so for David to seek after and go after anything less than total victory here would be an abdication of his duty and his responsibility to God's people, that they'd be protected, that they'd be defended. And so he wants cheeks struck and he wants teeth broken for the safety of God's people. Ultimately, the gospel has to be about others. right? The gospel does not exist so that we might have some 12-step program so that we can deal with all of our junk and feel okay about ourselves. The gospel exists so that we might be a blessing to the nations. He's got to deal with our junk and our mess, and he does that. The gospel's strong. The gospel's powerful. But our junk and our brokenness gets dealt with so that we can turn our gaze outward. So we can take the gospel to those around us so that we can minister to them and be ambassadors to them in their brokenness and in their weakness so that they might come to places where they can begin to be honest with the Lord about who they are and about their situation so that they might... Have reason to remember what the Lord's done for them so that they can cry out again and again and again "Help me, O Lord, that they might be able to surrender and they might be able to press on the gospels for God's glory and it's for God's people. let's pray. Oh God, would you glorify yourself by means of the gospel through our lives. In them, yes, but not just in them, also through them, Lord. Glorify yourself. Exalt the Lord Jesus. Show us, and more importantly, show those around us how great a Savior He is, how able He is, how sufficient He is, how strong He is. Lord, I pray that You take these habits and You would ingrain them deeply in our lives that by your spirit's transforming power through the power of your word through the power of your sacrament that we would even celebrate tonight forge these habits in our lives so that whether it's in the daily grind or whether it's in the the really horrible terrible situations that we find ourselves in Glorify yourself, Lord, by causing the gospel to bear fruit in our lives. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Would you stand?